A warning from us here at the tape room. This episode involves a gruesome crime. Our description includes graphic details of this murder. May 2004. Three matching suitcases scattered across the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia. What's inside as bad as you can imagine? Each one containing different body parts. In the first one, a torso with the arms and head still attached. In a second suitcase, there was the pelvis area, and in the third suitcase, the legs down. His name was Bill McGuire, the victim of a vicious crime. I'm Dan Bowens, and you are listening to The Tape Room. On this episode, the sensational case and conviction of the so-called suitcase killer Melanie McGuire, the victim's wife. McGuire, now 46 years old, is serving a life sentence at the Edna Mann Correctional Facility. She's always maintained her innocence. The case is now the focus of a new podcast called Direct Appeal. Our conversation now with the hosts of that podcast, Fairleigh Dickinson University criminology professors Amy Schlossberg and Megan Sachs. Okay, Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg, hosts of the Direct Appeal podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us. The Tape Room podcast, a little cross-promotion. In addition to that podcast, which has been super successful about the suitcase killer, um, Melanie McGuire, you're also criminologist at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Can you tell me a little bit more about, about your day jobs? Amy, you want to start? Sure. So I am a criminology professor at Fairleigh Dickinson. I teach a variety of courses, intro to criminology, which is a course I teach every semester. I also teach research methods and data analysis, but more interestingly, um, race and crime, offender reentry, miscarriages of justice, wrongful convictions. And along with that, of course, we do advising and we help our students, you know, figure out what they want to do and help them, you know, navigate the world of criminology. Yeah. Amy's been with us, I think, for eight years. So mm -hmm. I am the criminology program director, and this was a program that didn't exist until, oh my gosh, 10 years ago. So I was the program, the original program director, and I started with something like six students, and now we have, I don't know, 160, something like that. Um, so it was quite the endeavor to build a program and decide what the coursework should look like and what should students know in our field when they're going out into the real world. And would reviewing a case like this, like a high-profile case or, or any type of case, looking at it, looking to see if there were discrepancies and sort of adding your own opinions to it, would that be something that you would typically do or is this really a sort of stepping out into a, a world you didn't really know? Definitely the latter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a new world for us, I would yeah. say. What, we, what drew you to it? I mean, what, what made you, once you, we'll get to, the, get to the call you got, but once you sort of, was it the case, the, the details of the case, or was it just the possibility of, wow, this could be a real opportunity? I think both. Uh, first, I should say, we do actually reference cases like this one all the time in our teaching, and even sometimes in our research, but actually examining it as a, just one case, and diving in, and looking at the truth, or, you know, um, lies looking at you know doing a real case study is not common and for us well for me I was drawn to this initially the story was interesting I teach women in crime so I do I'm, I tend to I, I'm drawn to female offenders and what you know motivates them to commit certain crimes 
And certainly this was a well-known case in New Jersey and it had all the celebrated aspects, right? It has like your, your beautiful defendant, unexpected defendant, there's an affair, there's a court TV case, there's a famous lawyer, there's X, Y, and Z. So there are lots of, you know, interesting components. And I wanna to get to a whole lot of that stuff in a second, okay. but I wanted to start with those suitcases, three of them. Three 2004, suitcases. discovered in the Chesapeake Bay. What's inside? Unfortunately, what's inside is um, the remains of William McGuire, also known as Bill McGuire or Billy McGuire to his family. So I think that was really quite the shock to people who discovered the suitcases. And how were they found? These are three different suitcases. It's mm -hmm. not one. And these are, I mean, we're talking about literal body parts that are chopped up and put in mm -hmm. these suitcases. Where are they found and what can you tell me about what's inside? So they were discovered in the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia in various locations. One was on Fisherman's Island and the, I believe the two others were actually in the bay. And um, there were different parts of the body. So uh, in one suitcase there was kind of a torso um, with the arms and head still attached. Um, in a second suitcase there was the pelvis area and in the third suitcase there was really the legs down. So it literally appeared as if the um, his body was cut to fit these suitcases. And it was Billy McGuire? Yes, it was. Who, who was Billy McGuire, Amy? Who was he? Well, he was a husband, a father of two young boys. Um, he had two sisters. Um, and he was, you know, we don't know him. We, you know, unfortunately, we don't know him. We know a lot of Melanie because Melanie is who we talked to on the podcast. And unfortunately, of course, he's the victim. So we only know what, really what she tells us. And that's through her lens. So I can't say much about the victim because I don't know. And it takes a while to sort of identify him. This is hard to identify because you don't have what you would normally have in a wallet or mm -hmm. sort of these kind of things when you have body right. parts. Mm -hmm. So it takes a while for them to make the identification. How, how does that happen eventually? It doesn't happen right away. Well, they have a sketch. They put out a sketch and actually two of his friends who live in uh, they live in Virginia Beach. They identified him. They called and said, you know, we believe that's William McGuire. What a coincidence. I mean, he's got two friends that happen to live down there. He's from New Jersey. And they he used to live there. Yeah, he's yeah. from New Jersey, lived in New Jersey. And, and, and it's these friends who mm -hmm. just happen to live in well, this Virginia Well, he used Virginia to live in, West, in, right. yeah, in that area, so I guess. Had to be a shock to them when they see their friend on television as this person who's been killed or, or is dead in, in, in this terrible circumstance. Um, so they said it was, yes. They called in, you know, he's been missing for three weeks. They see a sketch and from what we know, they actually, um, I did contact one of the friends who has not returned uh, my call, uh, mm -hmm. which is okay. But um, from what I understand and not speaking to him directly, of course it was a shock. But it is also like, you know, it is a coincidence. Mm -hmm. His body was found in this area and he's from there, or not from there, sorry, he's from New Jersey, but he spent six, seven years there. He has friends there and his body is found there. So I would say there's an element of surprise, but also an element of coincidence. Three years go by before there's a, there's a trial, the high profile trial. Right. Melanie McGuire, his wife is eventually convicted, known as the suitcase killer, sort of the glorified Correct. version. She spent 12 years in prison. She's maintained her innocence and she reached out to you. Can you tell me about that? How did that happen? <laughs> um, so Melanie is housed in Edna Mann Correctional Facility. It's the only female facility in New Jersey and we work at FDU. 
uh, we have a number of students who have interned in Edmond and also colleagues who have taught there. Enough people that have gone through there that have also come back to us and specifically come back to me with stories of Melanie McGuire and all the people who support her innocence. And, you know, there was word that Melanie would love to talk to someone about her story, and I don't know if anyone or no one responded, but I remember saying, well, she can call me, um, something to that effect, and I actually got a phone call from her mother not too long after, uh, and I think her mother was the first point of contact for me, and we just started talking about her case, and she, you know, she knew I was a criminologist, and we just started talking about the details, and I started talking to um, a friend of Melanie's, and eventually um, I got in touch with Melanie herself. And you went down to the prison? I did, at not immediately. Right. So that took probably four months or so, and I went down at Melanie's uh, request and at her invite, I should say. Do you remember when she walked into the room? I mean, this is a person you've probably read about, seen, and, yes. you know, it's, 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 it can be, I mean, sort of surprising when you see them in person. I mean, what, what did you, what, how did she strike you when, when you saw her the first time? Right. So I walked into a cafeteria, a little bit different than the men's prisons I visited. They're higher security. So I walked into this open cafeteria and Melanie is across the room and she's waving and smiling and of course she doesn't look like the femme fatale she was depicted as. She looks, you know, like an average nice person with a smile is warm and inviting. And I remember walking in and walking over and she hugged me and I was like, okay. Um, and then we sat down at a cafeteria table in a prison and she just started talking. Um, talking in a way that you would talk to any person. And you told her that Okay, I'll look into this, but I'm not on your side. I'm not going to be looking to exonerate you. I'm going to give this a fair look. I did, but in fairness, you know, we're not lawyers, and I didn't want her to think that. And I also, in fairness, we're just criminologists, and I don't, we don't, we didn't have a, I didn't have a dog in the fight, and I just wanted her to understand that she could tell me the story she wanted to. We could decide to do something with it or not, but I would only, you know, sort of report on the results that I believed in. And if I thought she was guilty, I was going to report that way. And uh, Amy, I was going to ask you, uh, ask you this one. Um, you think that's a risk for, for uh, Melanie to sort of say, okay, you're not on my side, but I'm going to give you, you know, give you this opportunity to yeah. look at this case and, you know, you could, you could sh shut the door on me completely. Yeah. That's probably a risk for her to do well, that. Well, she's still in the federal, appellate, uh, the federal appellate system, so it's um, against her lawyers advising to talk to anyone. Um, it also, the other side of me feels, well, she doesn't have that much to lose, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, the odds of getting a federal appeal is very slim, and she's probably well aware of that. So she's probably just kind of throwing darts at the wall and hoping something sticks at this point. Um, but yeah, it was, I was surprised because usually most people would wait till they exhausted their, all of their appeals. Let's back up. 2004, uh, turbulent relationship, Melanie yeah. and, and Bill. Can you talk to me a little bit about their relationship, Amy? Sure. Um, from what Melanie has told us, again, it's from mm -hmm. Melanie's point of view. So what Melanie has told us, it was a lot of, um, they were both having affairs at you know different times in their relationship. So you know fidelity was not something they valued in their relationship. Um, he seemed controlling from again from what Melanie says. Um, a lot of arguing, a lot of back and forth. But they seemed like they liked that in their relationship. It seemed like that they both wanted that. Like that couple that you know. That's like okay, it's good. Exactly. One, of their, one of their deals again. Exactly. As she said, we'd break up, we'd get back together. We'd break up, we'd get back together. 
maybe having a child will fix this, or maybe having another child will fix this, right? So it seemed like a lot of back and forth, but you know, it's, hard to, it's hard to really know. We weren't there. And then this night comes where they were going to buy this house, or had already bought well, the house. Yeah. I'll ask uh, Megan, Megan this one. They're already going to buy the house. They, they're closing that day. And the way Melanie tells the story is there's a fight that happens mm -hmm. that night. In the midst of all this, their, mm -hmm. their relationship seems like it's okay, but always sort of on the rocks. And they decide that they're still going to go ahead and buy a house together. There's a lot sort of backstory there, but then there's this fight that happens mm -hmm. that night. So the way Melanie described it is that she was not overly excited about buying a new house together, but it was still their commitment that they were going to raise their children together. And the way she explains it was that she thought it was a smarter move to put their money into a house than to allow that money to kind of be out there. Because um, she had always said that uh, her husband had a gambling problem and maybe better to tie up the money here than to have it loose. I mean, that's her story. That's her story. Is um, that, yeah, get the money invested somewhere as opposed to letting him gamble with it. And it's her fairness, story. There's some truth to that which we can substantiate from his gambling records. He was a gambler for mm -hmm. sure and probably more so than I would gamble or And that plays know. a big role in the case, his his the possibility of him I think so gambling. the possibility of it, right? Um, the true extent we don't know, but he certainly was um, somewhat of a gambler. And so her story is that she wanted to at least she was happy they'd be putting the money into something. Um, and so they were up against the wall with their lending and she didn't think they were going to get the mortgage and apparently Bill did get the money from uh, I guess a second mortgage company sort of last minute and their closing went through and uh, the day that or the night that she says they had this big fight earlier in the day they had closed on their new house and that was in the afternoon sometime and then she says the evening went on and you know they were at home they had a couple glasses of wine they fell asleep and then they woke up sometime in the early morning of the next day so maybe it was 1 a.m. or some somewhere around there and um, her claim is that you know they were kind of groggy and getting up and going to bed she had laundry they had lots of stuff to do they were moving and so she says that she said something to him the effect of well you know congratulations you must be happy this was the dream you got your house and he said no, this was not the dream. The dream was to move to a, you know, a bigger house in Virginia. This is what we settled for because of what you wanted. You wouldn't let us leave. And from there, an argument ensued that went on for quite some time. And that's her side of it. We don't know what his side of it is, obviously. Correct. We'll, not, we'll never know. No. Big fight that happens. Mm -hmm. She says that this fight was the end all of it. She mm -hmm. said it got physical. She claimed that uh, he stuffed a, a dry cleaning towel or a dry cleaning sheet. A dryer sheet. Dryer sheet. And that that was something that she couldn't deal with. Mm -hmm. And she left, according to her story. She, he left. He, oh, he leaves. Mm -hmm. He left. He leaves. And she decides, that's it. I've had enough. And, and that is, that's, that's sort of the, the, the tipping point, whether you believe her story or you don't mm -hmm. believe her story. I mean, there's plenty yeah. more, I guess, that's to it. But she decides in that moment that she is out of there, done with him, leaving his, filing for divorce, going to get a restraining order. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that she does next right. that sort of lays the groundwork for a whole lot of what happens in the right. story. Yeah. Yes, that's true. She says that was it for her. It was one fight too many. Um, it was one physical act too many. And she just said she knew then. Um, she knew before, she says there was a fight before where she knew she should have left and she regretted not leaving or not ending their relationship then. And she said this time she knew. It was one fight too many, one step too far and this just wasn't 
according to her, going to work anymore. And so I was going to say, is there a way for, and you're doing this podcast, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're getting these, this great access to her and because yeah. you're doing all these f phone interviews with her where it's, it's a lot of hours. I can't imagine how many hours you, you've had. Over 50. But are you able to substantiate any of those claims about some of, may, I mean, you can't really substantiate the, the, the sheet and the, that particular fight, but some of these other issues that they may have had, are you able to substantiate that? Yeah, a few of them we were able to substantiate. So a fight that she said they had um, her mother, independent of her, told me um, a very similar story about a big fight that they had had. It wasn't a physical altercation, but it was not a good fight, and it was one in which it was, you know, pretty dramatic, and he had left her behind at a family function, and it was bad. Um, I was also able to substantiate, so I did the interviews and then kind of brought them to Amy's attention because I wanted her objective point of view, but through a couple of new interviews that I just did, I was able to substantiate that they did have a tumultuous relationship um, and what someone as an outsider who is friends with both of them would classify as an emotionally abusive relationship. And what happens next, Amy, is some of, mm -hmm. she does the restraining order, she goes and tries to get a temporary restraining order, mm -hmm. she starts consulting divor divorce lawyers. Some people may say, wow, that's pretty abrupt yeah. considering where you were to what happened, which eventually mm -hmm. adds to some of the suspicion. And then there's some odd behavior that she does in terms of going down to South Jersey, mm -hmm. going to some of these casinos, his moving his car. I mean, can you give me sort of the brief yeah. version of these odd events that sort of happen there? And again, this is her version of events, yep. right? So it's really hard to know. Her and of course some of it is substantiated through easy pass records and other, you know, um, I guess there was some camera footage at some points, but mm -hmm. according to Melanie, she uh, she went to get a restraining order. She dropped her kids off at her parents' house. Um, she went to Atlantic City to see if he was there because she had a feeling he would be there. Which is weird, you would say, <laughs> because if, you if you're trying to get away from somebody mm -hmm. and filing a restraining order, why would you go try to find but, them? But, you know, um, we have thought about that and you know, speaking to people who work with women who are in abusive relationships or, you know, experts in that area, that is behavior that may seem odd to some people. However, to a woman in that situation, it isn't out of the realm of normalcy, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Um, it gets a little strange because she goes, to, she finds his car, she moves his car, she takes cabs back, a cab back to Woodbridge and then a cab back to Atlantic City. You know, there's a lot of movement that strange activity a right. lot of strange mm -hmm. activity and she's shopping for furniture in delaware and, you know there's she's calling easy pass to get some of the charges removed from you know the ping on easy pass which looks suspicious mm -hmm. yeah it takes a while before police sort of zero in on her i would imagine i mean it's a it's a while before she's actually arrested um, oh uh and, yeah and, it was a year a little over a year and and in that time it sort of comes out that she's been having an affair with the doctor who yeah. she she'd worked with mm -hmm. and the theory begins to build that she killed her husband to be with the doctor yes. right it happened in the apartment this mm -hmm. is the state's theory and somehow she was able to cut up the body not leave any evidence mm -hmm. behind mm -hmm. put the body into these suitcases mm -hmm. drive down to virginia which is a Seven hours. Seven, eight hours. hour drive. Toss the suitcases into the Chesapeake Bay, and that's, you know, that's pretty much the story. Yes. Which, which, and there's no, and, that the, and that's the other side of it from the state side of it. 
But the difficult thing is there's no physical evidence, no. or there's limited physical evidence, which no, is something that no. you guys talk a lot about in your in the podcast. I, I wouldn't yeah. call it limited. Yeah, I, I don't call think it, there's any. There's no physical evidence. They 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 searched that apartment. Um, we've said it was five times. I believe for sure four times, maybe five, and they found absolutely nothing. They ripped out piping. They ripped out floors, walls. There's nothing to suggest that any crime, they even, sorry, there's, n there's nothing to suggest any crime happened there. They even surveyed the water bills to see if maybe it was higher because she was, you know, running the showers. No irregularity. Um, there's nothing to suggest that any crime happened in her apartment whatsoever. But there's plenty of circumstantial evidence. Oh, yeah. I don't, even if there's plenty of circumstantial, I agree. Noth no circumstantial evidence suggests that a crime happened in their apartment mm. is where I would disagree. And there are some things that do come out that she did buy a gun a yes. couple days before. So there are some of the, Amy, can you talk to me about some of the, you can maybe stay on the, the, the yeah. The, there's some of the circumstantial evidence that yeah. that comes out that really does yeah. start to play a role and is, is the reason mm -hmm. why she eventually is arrested yeah. and, it's, and It's and not charged. looking good for her from a circumstantial standpoint. Um, she did buy a gun, and she claims that she bought the gun because Bill had asked her to because he had a, a felony, so he could not buy a gun for himself. So she claims that she was helping him because he wanted a gun. Mm -hmm. um, so she did buy the gun. She claimed she did not tell the police about the gun because they didn't ask about the gun, nor did she tell the police about the affair she was having because they didn't ask. Mm -hmm. Of course, they come to find out all of this anyway, right? Um, chloral hydrate. Chloral hydrate. <laughs> a um, false prescription for a sedative yeah. where maybe the prosecution says she kept him sedated for a number yeah. of days before. And it's unclear who filled the prescription. Circumstantial evidence, it, it seems like Melanie probably more was more likely to fill it. I don't know. I, I disagree, disagree on that on point. that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and this is a lot of the stuff that you're sort of going back and reviewing exactly. in, in the podcast itself. Yes. And and I've, I've heard you describe it, Megan, as you are the sort of taking the public and keeping the prosecution, keeping the state, keeping all parties involved here to task. And that's what the role of podcasts in a lot of ways have have sort of come to symbolize. These true crime podcasts have really become very successful. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're out there, yours and some of the other ones. Is that how you see it, some of the role of a, of a podcast like this? I think ours is. Um, the role was, you know, when someone is in prison for either life or on death row and they adamantly maintain their innocence, why shouldn't we take another look into it? We know plenty, I'm not saying this is a wrongful conviction, but we know plenty about wrongful convictions that if someone is screaming and waving, um, and we have the ability to look and shine a light a little bit on this past the courts, why not? We know the courts get it wrong. So I actually think, yeah, the role of a criminologist um, and maybe of a podcaster, and, and I've seen recent podcasts do it well, is to be able to say, this is what's going on, and, and maybe, maybe this is exactly as it seems. Um, but in our case, even if Melanie was convicted and it's, it's, the conviction is right, the circumstances and the explanation are absolutely not right. So, how do you? What do you mean by that? I, I mean the explanation that the prosecution gave is not right. That she murdered, that she shot him. Um, I'm sorry, she shot him in her house. Uh, and even though certain bullets went through his body, they couldn't find any evidence in the apartment. Um, there would have been blood. Um, that she would have actually sawed up his body in her house. Cut and up that, the body. Cut mm -hmm. up the body in her house. 
um, exsanguinated him, which means to drain all of his blood out, and to have done all of this in her home um, is is absolutely, and without anyone hearing it, all the adjoining apartments, um, the prosecution said she may have muffled a saw, a reciprocating saw. Um, she may have muffled the uh, firearm, and she may have even stored his body parts on ice in the apartment. This is all not true. And so, that's some of the things you guys look at in your podcast where you bring in certain experts yes. to, to sort of independently mm -hmm. look. I wanted to talk specifically about the, the, the crime alleged to have taken place in the house and then maybe in the bathroom or somewhere mm -hmm. cutting up the body where your expert found that sure you could do it but that would be hard for yeah. a woman. Melanie is what mm -hmm. five foot three, five foot four, yeah, you know, 120, 120 maybe, pounds. Yeah. It would be difficult. I mean, what does your, your expert say about that part of it? Well, there's what the expert, the expert we spoke to was a surgeon, Jim Barone, and he just talked about the way one would cut up a body if they had any medical knowledge. Since Melanie was a nurse, there was, you know, the prosecutor contended that, you know, she knew what she was doing because she had medical training. But in fact, that's not true because the way the body was cut up was not someone who would have any sort of medical training. Um, Couldn't have been in the spur of the moment that, you know, I might have medical training, yep. but I'm just trying to do yep. this however Adrenaline and you're just trying to get it done, absolutely. But I don't know that she would have had the strength to do it herself. The heaviest suitcase weighed upwards of 80 pounds. If I heaviest remember. weighed almost 100 pounds. Almost 100 pounds. And we did a suitcase test. I don't know if you had time to check it out, but. I um, heard I heard, <laughs> I heard. that part of it. Where you, you're, 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 you're in my suitcase test, you mean Testing you filled moment. a suitcase with 60 pounds, 80 pounds, 100 pounds. Tried to lift it over the. And tried to lift it over what the measurements are for, exactly. the, for that bridge mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in Virginia. And, yeah, and it was really. It, it just, it made, in that moment I realized there was no way. I don't know if she did it. She did not do it alone or did not do it the way the prosecutor said. She simply, I don't believe, had the strength. I do understand if people are, you know, stress and adrenaline, it could make you very strong and do things you don't think you could do, but that's a lot of weight. Wouldn't she have the, wouldn't she have a motive to do it though? I mean, that's one of the things that the prosecutors yeah. really put out there that if that, look, Bill's dead. And mm -hmm. there's one person who bought the gun two days before. Right. There's one person who was having an affair. So there's, these are the things mm -hmm. that the prosecutor sort of yep. lays out in, in, in the case, in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah, the affair. Yeah, most people would say that an affair is a motive, although I think most of the cases I see, an affair is a motive when there is usually a financial incentive along with that. So where it might be a husband who murders a wife because he does not want to pay. Um, or a wife who murders her husband uh, because there's a financial benefit. In Melanie's case, there was, uh, Bill had life insurance, and it was, uh, I believe actually now, I looked into some records, it was three times the amount of his annual salary. So that would put it close to about $200,000. He was but, working um, at NGIT and correct. some other places, mm -hmm. right? He was, uh, I thought he was making close to $90,000. He say. was, yeah. but that was with um, other contract okay. work that he had. Okay. But his actual salary was about sixty-five, and so it would have been three times that. I'm terrible at math, so maybe that's, <laughs> a, it's close to $200,000. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, she put that money right away in a trust for her children that she couldn't touch immediately. None of it went to her. So the financial um, incentive uh, wasn't really there. The house they bought uh, was, you know, they were overextended on it. She did sell the house, but at a loss immediately, and she wouldn't have made any money on that. So you could look at the motive to be to get rid of her husband and not to have to deal with him. Certainly that could be the motive, but the financial motive wasn't there for her. Well, and also 
There were, Brad testified, the guy that she was. Brad Miller. Brad Miller testified to a this. A doctor, prominent. Doctor, prominent yeah. uh, she was having the affair. He had a family as well, and they had no immediate plans to get together. Correct. They were both, you know, they both said they were in love, and they did have plans to eventually leave their spouses, but nothing immediate. They didn't, mm -hmm. it's not like they said, oh, we're going to be together next week. It and was at, something. At, at some point, he begins to pro uh, uh, cooperate with the prosecutors, he and he's wearing a wire. And that was one thing that surprised me, where he, she didn't confide in him, according to any of those tapes, which would have come out, that, that I did this for you. Or, or that's one of the things prosecutors definitely wanted to hear, but it didn't, yeah. you're making a face. It didn't sound because, like there was Because that. why would you tell your new love <laughs> interest that you murdered your love? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if he's going to be, eventually they're going to get married, maybe it would scare him away to know that she killed her husband. And I don't know. I understand what you're saying, but it does seem like, I, I don't see why she would admit that to him. And it's interesting in the way Direct Appeal, your podcast, is presented because Megan you've done the interviews you've done uh, the, the phone interviews with yeah. with Melanie a lot of them and then you during the podcast in this sort of very real moment are presenting the information yeah. mm -hmm. to your criminology criminologist <laughs> partner and then yeah. you're reacting in live time and that's the podcast I and mean, that's that's sort of an interesting yeah. uh, way to do it yeah and I didn't actually you know, Megan and I share an office, we're friends and colleagues, and she would be doing these interviews over the last two years and not tell me what was going on. The purpose being for it to be, you know, a real emotion. Like, how am I going to react hearing it the first time? So on the podcast was the first time I heard any of those interviews mm -hmm. um, to be able to react, you know, organically. I wanted the objectivity too. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew that I was doing interviews and I was closer to people. How could this, how could I remove this to someone who would be even more objective and a criminologist. Mm -hmm. And plus, this is what Amy and I do. We, mm -hmm. we banter about mm -hmm. cases, about what we think, mm -hmm. about um, certain convictions. Yeah. You know, this is what we talk about on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And for Melanie, who is very, I'm not going to use the word calculated, but she is very, she can remember all these details. And if she did kill her husband, she certainly has uh, uh, just just the, the consistency of the way she tells the story, which seems like the way she told it then and the way she's telling it now and mm -hmm. the way she repeats it and the details that she has. And she's very upfront. Yes, I had an affair. Mm -hmm. Yes, I bought the gun. Here's why I did it. Here's why I, I, you know, I, I wanted to do it. Um, could, did, did that play, did that sort of influence you and in sort of how you heard it, the way she was sort of so matter-of-fact about so many of these things? Is that, when you, when you hear from someone who maybe is guilty, do you, do you find that they can have this sort of psychopathic way of just saying, putting this to the side? Sure, it's possible that certain psychopathic personalities, which are extreme, or sociopathic personalities, which are also extreme, can do this. It is hard for people to remember so consistently lies. Lies are very hard to remember. And, and the average person doesn't think about that. They think she's had time to rehearse. Right, she has. But you know, the story that she's given or the multiple stories have been consistent from absolute start without really deviating. And believe it or not, even though you have time to practice it, and of course there are the extreme personalities who can do that and, and do that well, it's very hard to so consistently remember the same even small lies. Um, so I would say that one of the influencers or something that's influential to me is that Melanie is super consistent in every detail. 
And you, you touched on this earlier, and I wanted to get you both to react to it. Um, obviously, this is a high-profile case, was a high-profile case, in large part because she's a mom from the suburbs, a petite nurse, mm -hmm. and a female killer, a female, um, you know, and, and to have the killing in this way, that had to sort of draw people in, but also just the fact that she's a female killer or, or an alleged mm -hmm. female killer, convicted female killer mm -hmm. at this point. What, what did you make of, of that part of it? I mean, her, her uh, it's possible for women to kill, and that mm -hmm. in this way, it, in, and it to sort of be so personal, it seems like, mm -hmm. that, that is one thing, I guess, that is, is consistent when there are women who uh, commit homicides. Um, Certainly, I, I mean, I, yeah, I yeah, teach women in yeah. crime, so I can tell you that um, women, you know, often kill a spouse or a child. Some, women often kill someone that they know. Um, it's sort of a mixed method. So historically, women were kind of excluded from criminology, like women couldn't kill. And when it was first acknowledged that women could, it was thought, or most commonly, women kill often use poisons or sedatives or substances, arsenic, um, things of that nature. The way they do it is historically fit with their roles as homemaker and whatnot. So Melanie's interesting in that they claim that she sedated him with a substance, but then also shot him, which is not as common. And I do find I have a problem with that mix as well. I'm not sure that the uh, chloral hydrate prescription was actually obtained by Melanie. Um, I'm not sure that it's even relevant to this case, to be honest. They didn't find any chloral hydrate in Bill's um, system, even though um, there were limitations with testing substances, but they were able to do it and test his blood. And I, I'm really not sure that the chloral hydrate is even an issue here. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not sure if she did do it. Certainly shooting him doesn't fit the typical female killer mode. And you're also looking at the, the actual trial here. Mm -hmm. uh, she had a very high-profile attorney. Sure. And she had what they thought was an all-star team, but yeah. mm -hmm. there are a lot of questions about the defense, and that's something that she has sort of brought up in some of her appeals as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Yeah, the appellate court does not agree. Um, I think both of us do believe that there were things that the defense didn't do that they maybe should have done, uh, maybe witnesses that they could have called, um, things they should have maybe pushed back on that they didn't. Um, and it was a high-profile attorney, Joe Tacopina. Uh, yeah, and she spent a well-known attorney quite a bit of money on that defense as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess just based on who her attorneys were and what their backgrounds were, I guess people maybe expected a different show, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if I don't, I don't know. It, it's so hard to say looking at it, looking back, like what would have made a difference. I don't know. I think there's probably experts that they should have called that they didn't. I think that's maybe the biggest miss. Um, right. But I don't know. And the, they also, um, she also, her team didn't benefit. There were a couple judicial decisions mm -hmm. that were negative for her. So there were two witnesses who could have bolstered Melanie's claims mm -hmm. that the judge would not allow. One of them was Bill's ex-wife. Um, and she would mm -hmm. have testified to the way that Bill left her in a very similar fashion. That he disappeared every once in a while. Kind of disappeared, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and she would have also testified mm -hmm. to their type of relationship. And the judge wouldn't allow that testimony. But I think even more importantly would have been um, the second witness who was a former colleague of Bill's. And he was allowed to testify in a very limited scope. And what he was allowed to say was that he and Bill at one point had a conversation about a gun. And that's it, which is very... 
uh, open-ended, right? Um, what he would have testified to, uh, and the judge wouldn't allow it, was that he and Bill had a conversation about a gun in which Bill said he wanted to purchase a firearm. Which is what Melanie had said, yeah, right. but the jury wasn't allowed to hear it. They and weren't the jury... allowed to hear that. He was, you know, he wanted to purchase one, he could not, and he was going to ask his wife to purchase one for him. Now imagine the jury hears that. And, and they, been... never, they never found the gun. No. They never found the gun, and so yeah. they were, they were, um, they were able to obviously say that Melanie purchased the gun. Yep. Yes. And that her husband was missing, and mm -hmm. that they had a fight, and that she had an affair, mm -hmm. and that there's probably a question in the jury's mind. Well, if not, it, there's just too much to mm -hmm. say. Too many coincidences. Too many yeah. coincidences here. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, you, you had you had this fight. And then just like that, you decide, okay, that's it, it's over, and then he, he's, he vanishes. Um, so are you, ha have you reached the point where you've made a decision or you've, you've, you've sort of say, you feel comfortable saying one way or another in this case? Well, you're going to have to tune in. That's our, <laughs> uh, our final two episodes are going to be our, you know, we're actually, I don't know, actually, I don't want to speak for Megan, but I'm still going back and forth. So I am as well, um, but that's also, we took a brief hiatus right now, so we're on a, like a six-week hiatus, and it's because we had, we have more, we had a couple interviews, some tips that came in, and some experts who volunteered to help, and I really think that it's going to be at the end of revealing, all, or conducting, actually finishing yeah. all of these interviews for myself, that I'll be able to decide, but it's not... I have no definite one way or the other. I think I need all this information to decide for sure. Yeah. It sounds like, not sure if she did it, but feel pretty confident that it didn't happen the way the state says it happened. Yes, positive. I, yep, I fully agree with that. Tough. Which I think, I mean, just for me, I think yeah. that should create reasonable doubt. Yeah. I think if the that should be enough. Right? The explanation, what I think the defense should have done, you know, a very easy thing was just kind of what we did: get a surgeon in to talk about. Mm -hmm the blood splatter, the tissues, the particles, the fact that we had, um, our surgeon was the former head of surgery at Stanford. Um, and he said, even I couldn't exsanguinate someone. Mm. That's not something an, a, an, a nurse would know how to do. That's a funeral director's job. That is very difficult. Can, can you, Megan, sort of, just sort of answer that again and talk to me about why this, why you don't think, why you think Maybe she did it, but it didn't happen the way the state said it. Well, I mean, why, why, do you, why do you say that? So I'm not sure if she uh, did this crime or not, but I'm certain that the state has it wrong. Their theory is that she um, shot him and cut him up and exsanguinated him, which means to drain, drain his blood in the apartment. And we have a surgeon that came in. And I mean, initially when I heard this, I thought, well, we know enough to know there's gonna, it's going to leave blood. There's going to be tissue. They couldn't find anything. You know, went through the, the police went through the apartment four or five times. They moved to some, another family moved out. Another family out. They, they ripped out drains mm -hmm. and they could find nothing. And then we have a surgeon come in who is, you know, he's been the head of surgery at Stanford, um, head of surgery somewhere else. And he really speaks very plainly to this, saying, first of all, there would be something. There would be some tissue. There would be a blood. There would be something. It's almost impossible to do that in a home setting. Um, he says, I really can't see how that's possible, but even if that were possible, um, to exsanguinate someone, he said, even I uh, would have no idea how to do that. And the lay nurse, an average nurse, is going to have, there's no training. There's no, you know, he said, the only person I know who would know how to do that is a funeral director. And I thought, okay. He said, so that is, I mean, he just said it. He said, it's really ridiculous. And it is. And, and I guess that's one of the things that never came up. Uh, during the trial, or at least that's one of the exactly. things that they didn't talk about 
And I guess that's part of the reason why you do your podcast is because there's stuff out there that that didn't come out. Maybe it goes one way. Maybe it goes another. It still could. You they still could. You still could uncover one thing to say. You know what? Oh. But maybe she had some help. You know. I mean, sure, there's there's exactly. there's other stuff that still could be out there. I think it's really again. I don't know if she's innocent or guilty, but I think it's hard to say that if she did it, she did it by herself. So either she's innocent or there's someone who has not been brought to justice in this case. That's my personal opinion, I think, right now. And I think <laughs> I, either way you look at it, the truth the truth is not out there. So I would love to, you know, we're, we'd love to know the, and the truth about what happened, whether or not she did it or not. We don't know the full truth right now. No. So, And, you know, guilt or innocence is one issue, but did she get justice? Was it a fair trial? Uh, that's really, I think, what we try to examine. Is I don't think a lot of people realize how our system is supposed to work and how it actually works. So I hope that that's something that comes through in the podcast. Is it's actually about justice and about a fair trial, due process, not necessarily. Of course, justice for the victim is always number one, but understanding the truth is really important. The Tape Room is part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dan Bowens. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Matt Onimus. Our executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Ahmad Asgar. Byron Harmon is vice president of Fox 5 News, and Lou Leone is vice president and general manager. Stay tuned for the next episode of The Tape Room.